if we are people who have had the experience of hearing others say you don't deserve the same rights as everyone else, or if you are someone who's had the experience of being told you don't belong, or if you are someone who's had the experience of looking out at the world and thinking it's not built for you, that you have a duty to make other people feel less that way. And that's really my driving thing that I, I try to think about all the time, I think about more in Pride Month than other times, is that at a very core level, no kids should look out at the world and think it's not built for them, especially in this country. That's Aaron Boss Lung, an alum of both City Year and Teach for America, who's currently the executive director of the Miami-Dade Trial Lawyers Association. Aaron's family has a long and deep commitment to service. His maternal great-grandfather served in World War II and liberated prisoners from Nazi concentration camps, and his paternal grandfather served in the Army as well in the years right after World War II. Aaron's parents met when they were both in South Dakota awaiting Peace Corps placements. So it's perhaps not all that surprising that after high school, Aaron chose to serve with the AmeriCorps program City Year Washington, D.C., where he spent his days serving as a tutor, mentor, and role model to students in high-need schools. After college, Aaron chose to serve again as a Teach for America Corps member, teaching students at Homestead Senior High School in Miami-Dade. During that time, Aaron was asked to start a gay-straight alliance at the school. He expected 10 or 12 kids to show up, but at the first meeting, 56 students and nine teachers attended. And partly as a result of that experience, Aaron decided to come out as gay to his students that year and saw how his choice inspired his students to be more honest and courageous in their own lives. In recent years, Aaron has channeled all of these experiences into work in politics. He's worked on multiple political campaigns, serving as a strategist and operative for Shannon Del Prado, Dr. Nancy Lothar, Representative Dodie Joseph, Congresswoman Donna Shalala, and his own mother, Michelle Baslun, who ran successfully to become a state representative in Vermont. He also served on the LGBTQ Victory Fund campaign board, helping to elect LGBTQ candidates in all 50 states. He served briefly as the executive director of Miami-Dade Democratic Party, and as previously stated, is currently executive director of the Miami-Dade Trial Lawyers Association. I'm Dr. Max Clow, Senior Director of Leadership Development at New Politics, a bipartisan organization dedicated to revitalizing American democracy by recruiting, supporting, and electing servant leaders who put community and country over self. And on every episode of this podcast, I sit down with a servant leader who has chosen to serve again through politics. And in today's conversation, we discuss Aaron's unique upbringing, what he learned from his many years of national service, and how his experiences as a member of the LGBTQAI community have influenced his approach to politics. Aaron is an amazing servant leader, and we're happy to lift up his voice on this Pride Month podcast, highlighting the powerful ways that LGBTQAI servant leaders are making a difference in politics today. Aaron Boslun, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Max. I'm excited to be here. I'm a big admirer of new politics and I've loved the, the training I've gone through and admire the, the mission of the organization. So it's good to join you. Great. And I've been following your career and just excited to connect. So here's where I always start these interviews is what's your earliest memory of learning the value of service? Oh, man, what a question. Um, well, you know... Yeah, I actually, it's funny to, to ask this question um, uh, while, I, while I'm here in my apartment, because just about 10 feet to my left, I have my grandpa's military jacket from when he was in the service from 1945 until 19, 
53. Um, and growing up, my grandpa was uh, a retired professor by the time I was born, uh, but he was originally a ninth grade dropout who um, was from Harlan County, Kentucky. And uh, he dropped out in ninth grade because he didn't see the point of staying in school. Uh, and after a few years working and selling watermelon on the side of the road, he ended up joining the military in 1945, right at the end of World War II, um, and served eight, eight years. And that became foundational for the rest of his life, including that he got to go to college on the GI Bill. It was one of his officers who encouraged him uh, to go to college on the GI Bill. Uh, and so he ended up getting a, uh, his GED while he was in the service, got to go to college on the GI Bill, and later on got an advanced degree and became a college professor. And so I, first of all, just knew him as a retired professor, but I also knew that his military service had been foundational to his life. And he actually had like sort of the old style, you know, anchor tattoos on his, on his arm from when he was first in the Navy and then he was in the army. Um, and so as a kid growing up, I think I got this constant reminder, both of the value of education, just by like knowing him as a retired professor, um, but then also knowing that it was his military service that made that education possible. So I guess it was always there from a pretty young age. Right. Uh, part of the family history. Absolutely. That's great. So I want to understand a little bit more about your family and your life growing up. Your mother grew up in Taiwan. You have family in California, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. I know uh, thanks to your time with Teach for America, you kind of made Miami home. But tell us a little bit about, you know, some some key experiences growing up. Yeah. So, I, I you know, I was I, especially with like the political moment where I do sort of feel like I was created in some like mad scientist tomb like, <laughs> nice. between worlds. So, I mean, I was actually born in South Dakota because both my parents um, were waiting for Peace Corps placements. Um, and so they both were told to wait one year for the placements that they wanted. They both went to South Dakota to work for um, what was supposed to be a year at a school for Native American kids in South Dakota. And they met each other and decided to get married within a month. And I was born like 10 months after that. It didn't take a long time. And um, one year turned into four. Um, and then we moved to central Pennsylvania where my dad's family is from. And so my dad is from big family is one of seven. So I got to grow up um, in my childhood in central Pennsylvania, uh, rural central Pennsylvania, town of 500 people. Um, and, uh, you know, my a lot of cousins and big 4th of July barbecues and uh, got to know my, my dad's parents um, in central Pennsylvania. And then my mom's side of the family is from Wisconsin, um, except my, my grandparents, and I was always very close with them, had relocated to California in the 70s. So I think my childhood was sort of split between Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and uh, visiting my grandparents in California. And I think it just gave me this sense of the country was very different in different places, right? Because like where I grew up in central Pennsylvania has since been sort of immortalized by the New York Times as like, oh, why did this place vote for Trump? <laughs> and then Wisconsin, mm -hmm. the Milwaukee area, of course, was like the other place that, you know, the country discovered existed in 2016 as a result of the election. That to me, it wasn't like some anthropological thing. It's like my family and it's the place I used to go and where like my great grandma served like fruit and I enjoyed being because she had really good fruit in her apartment. And that was Milwaukee, right? Uh, my uncle's lake cabin and all that stuff. But then also my, my, my mom's parents are from Davis, California, which is like the left of the left politically. Right. Um, and so I just had this sense of like different people with very different lives. And then when I got older, my family relocated to New Hampshire and then Vermont. Um, and then by the time I was out of college, I went to college in, New in Massachusetts and then 
came down to Florida. And so I've had my whole adult life now 10 years in Miami. So it's like really kind of a strange mix, but like the politics of Florida compared and Miami compared to central Pennsylvania and California and Wisconsin and New England, they've all informed me in different ways. And they're, they're all, none of those places are like abstractions to me. They're all people. Right. And so I think that's part of what's weird is when I see the New York times talk about central Pennsylvania, the way that like, you know, like, anthropologist talked about right. Polynesia in 1900 yeah. and stuff like that. I'm like, what? <laughs> um, yeah, and you're, you're a bubble crosser. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's the yeah. weird thing. Is I'm mm-hmm. like, these are, I don't know. Like, when I hear Wisconsin, I don't think of, like, the 2016 election. I think of my, like, mom's family, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, and, and amazing that both your parents were Peace Corps and you guys, so I see the, the deep family commitment to service. That's a, Well, they actually, a funny enough, here. because... I kind of ruined that plan. Uh, they ended up staying and teaching at that school for four years. Although I still sort of hold on to this hope that they might do like the Jimmy Carter's mom thing. But that never too service late. was, um, was there for, for, for both of them. Yeah. Although I know your mom is serving again in politics and we're, we're going to get to that. Yeah. I have a, a yeah. um, want to hear more about that, but, but that's great. So I, I am seeing this multi-generational commitment to service. Um, and you chose to join City Year right after college. Am I getting the timing right? Uh, actually, I did City Year between high school and college. Between so after so as a, a gap year. So tell me, was that an easy decision? What led to that choice to do a year of service that time? Yeah. So it was. It's funny because looking back, it felt like such a natural thing at the time, and yet. Um, like, when I look at it now, I'm like, wow, I was 18. And that was like, not like what most 18 year olds do. Um, but at the time, I um, had won this full scholarship towards the end of high school to um, go to this crazy international school called United World College in New Mexico. And hmm. there were 200 students from 90, 90 different countries. Um, and at the time, 95% were on a full scholarship. So I met people from all over the world. My first roommate was from Ghana. My second roommate was from Bulgaria. Um, the range of students was people anywhere who'd like grown up as street kids to like the son of the CEO of 20th century Fox France. And we're all sort of living on a mountain in a desert in New Mexico. And it was while I was there that very paradoxically, I became more committed than ever to the idea of the United States because Everyone, like if you're in the debate club at school, like everyone says like, oh, one day you're going to be a lawyer. That's like the highest compliment you can get. Like the highest compliment you can get at that school, like you're going to be a diplomat. And to me, the way I thought about it is like, I live in the most powerful country in the history of the world. I live in a country that has unbelievable potential and has done enormous things. And why would I not commit my life to serving this country? Like, why do I need to go somewhere? That didn't, it, to me, it was so obvious. And while I was at that school, like I bought my first American flag and I'm like, this is my country. This is what I'm committed to making better. And so by the time I was done with that, that's why I chose to join City Year. And that's why I did it in DC is I liked the idea of doing something, going to the capital of the country and doing something that had nothing to do with politics and just had to do with helping people. And it's funny, we have like, it's city year, as some listeners may know, you have this red jacket and you have to sort of earn your red jacket for the first month. And when I got my, my red jacket, this part of the city year uniform, I still remember we had like a thing where you had to commit it to someone. And I chose to commit it to my grandpa on my dad's side of the family and my, my great grandma on my mom's side of the family, both of them were having health issues at the time. Um, both ended up living a few years beyond that. But it, to me, it just like felt such a natural, like, I've reached a point in my life where I have the ability to help other people through education. 
both of my parents were teachers. All four of my grandparents were our educators from elementary teacher's aide to college professor. And so for me at that point to be in the capital of the country, doing what I could to give to others through education just seemed so obvious um, and really became the foundation for my adult life. It's amazing that there was this consciousness of kind of continuing a generational chain and, and dedicating it to your grandparents. That's powerful stuff. So, you know, one of the things I'm always trying to explore in this podcast is to understand a little bit how these service experiences shape a person who ends up going into politics uh, years down the road. So I know it's a big question, but how do you think that time in city year kind of formed you? What'd you, what'd you learn from it? Yeah. You know, it's funny I, on absolutely every level. I mean, the first and the most immediate is that when I think of DC, the first thing I think of, I mean, again, and like shorthand now, even when politicians and every, every stripe of politician loves to rag on DC. But when I hear DC, I don't think of government. I think of public schools that are some of the, especially at the time, least supported, underfunded, where the kids have the least ability to realize the potential of America. Um, and that might be down the street from the White House. Like I remember, you know, there were days in the winter uh, and, and the school that I was assisting a, a teacher in, and she was a 40 year veteran of the DC public schools, unbelievable, phenomenal teacher, learned so much from working with her in many ways, wanted to become a teacher myself and did become a teacher myself because of her influence. And yet she was working in a school where like there were days in the school year where like the water stopped working down the street from the White House in the richest country in the world. <laughs> and yeah. so I think for yeah. one, it made politics fundamentally about people for me, right? First. Second is that, uh, you know, I had, I had had the chance to have some international exposure, which I was very lucky for. But when I entered City Year, I really knew very little about diversity in the context of America. I mean, and I remember when I got to City Year and learning that the DC public schools were 96% black. And I remember being like, what? Because I'd grown up in a, in a small town and I kind of just imagined like schools in the city were like 25% black, 25% Asian, 25% Hispanic, 25% white. Because like that seemed like they were in the movies, you know, like why would they real, be, right? Right. Like it's all like mm -hmm. high school musical mm -hmm. or something, right? Um, and, and so that right there is I'm like, why is this? And then the fact that, for example, like it just was unimaginable to me that in, a, in an affluent school you know, suburban school where the student population is white that we'd ever let the heat turn off in the winter. Like that would be a national catastrophe. And like, you know, it would, it would have been solved yesterday. And so I started to realize the way different people are treated. And I, I got enough exposure from that, that it made me very deeply interested in questions of race and belonging and identity and really trying to, to sort that out and realizing that I had to ask questions and I had to think about things I didn't yet know. And that shaped what I chose to study in college. I think that just shaped the way that eventually when I moved to Miami, I felt like, you know, and I, and I joined Teach for America, I felt like it was important to live in the community that I taught in because City Year taught me that um, if you don't know things, you have a duty to ask questions and listen and learn. Um, I mean, and even on that level, the decision to join City Year after college was a direct outgrowth of my teach firm of my um, my city year. The decision yeah. to join TFA was yeah. certainly shaped by city year because I was like, if I have been shaped so much by that service experience, first of all, that was powerful and worth it for the, the work you were doing. And second of all, 
there's there's such deep questions that they're they're well worth exploring for many more years. And so I think on almost every level, it approached how I did my work, what I valued. Um, but at that most core level, politics and policy are about people before they're about anything else. And I credit City here with that. Yeah, powerful. And you know, you're not the only one who's gone from city year, which is kind of working in schools and then and then choose to become a TFA core member and actually be a kind of front of the classroom teacher. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about how how is that different from city year and how did that experience shape you? Yeah, I mean, I am first of all, I mean, incredibly like grateful that I had the city year experience first, because especially with Miss Abney, who was the teacher that I that I assisted in. Um, in, in city year that I was able to have all that time learning from her about how to um, make the best use of the position of teacher. And I was really grateful to have that position. Um, but I think in my own way, and granted city year was a little different at the time and that it was much more project and program based. So like I spent two weeks, two weeks, two days out of the week assisting Miss Abney. And then the rest of the time we were running a program called Young Heroes. And right. that was a service learning program for middle school students where they'd learn about a social issue on a Saturday morning and then do a service project related to it in the afternoons. And um, I, because I had that experience, I think I came in to Teach for America thinking very holistically about like, what do kids face in their lives? Uh, I remember there was a boy on my Young Heroes team who had like run away from home. And there was another one whose father was killed in gun violence in the course of Young Heroes. And so I had a sense of just like what plays out in the course of a young person. Um, And that was all kind of built into my foundation. So by the time I got to be a teacher, I could never think about it as, oh, the state's dictating this. I'm like, you know, like when I look back on my city year experience, it wasn't about what the DC public schools were mandating was the most important thing. It was how are kids being prepared for life or not? And so I think in that sense, um, it, it gave me, um, I think a personal fortification uh, that no matter what policies might've been dictated from up high by people who may or may not in most cases do not have the best sense of what's happening in the front lines of a classroom, um, that for me, it was really, is school preparing you for life or, or is it not? And how do I align my actions with them? Yeah, powerful. So, you know, we're recording this in June. It's Pride Month, and we're eager to lift up the voices of, of LGBTQAI plus members of our community, like yourself. Um, so I wanted to bring a, a little bit of that into our conversation. I know you wrote a really powerful essay about your choice to come out as gay to your students when you were a teacher. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, you know, and it's 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 funny. It brings together a lot of the a lot of these things. Is when I joined Teach for America, and I I was teaching at Homestead Senior High. I was 23 years old, and I looked about 16. I was new to Miami. I was coming from the north. I was white, and 96% of the students were black or Hispanic, and. I was thinking about all of these things and I was like, I have a duty to listen and to learn and it's not my space to dictate. And the way I thought about it was that if I, if I come out, I'm going to A, jeopardize my ability to be effective as a teacher and B, I'm gonna make 
uh, kids uncomfortable and I'm going to make the community uncomfortable and it's not my space to do this. And I just can't touch the hot potato right now. I barely know how to mm-hmm. be out. I certainly didn't, you know, I was like, I'm focused. I'm here to be a teacher, not a gay teacher. Right. That's how I thought right. about it. And then, you know, life comes at you in weird ways. And I had some students ask me if I, I was not out at the time. And I had some students ask me if I would sponsor a gay straight Alliance. And I was like, oh no, I can't believe this. This is terrible. But they, they I was like, they're like, okay, oh my God, they're making me touch the hot potato. I don't, I don't want this. Make it go away. Um, but they had asked, they were in 10th grade at the time, and they had asked if they could have a gay straight alliance when they were in eighth grade, and they were told no. Then they asked again in ninth grade and they were told no. And I was the third teacher the third year in a row that they were asking. And I didn't want to do anything gay related, but I also more than that, didn't want to be another teacher who said no. And so I said right. I would sponsor it. And then I still wasn't out when we launched the Gay Straight Alliance. And I was really big on it being student-led. And so we had our first meeting and it was, um, you know, I, I, I agreed to sponsor. It took us some time to get through administrative barriers and so on. And when we had that first meeting, we planned for 10 to 12 students to attend. Um, and then we thought it would whittle down to five or six. And it would be a support group for a small amount of students. So we have our first meeting and the students were, you know, the students had pushed, I was just providing the room and the space and so on. And we had 56 students and nine teachers show up to that first meeting. And it was incredible outpouring of, of stories. And not just, this was the most striking thing to me, not just um, kids who themselves were LGBT or even sort of in the, even anywhere in that domain. We had, we, we kept hearing in that first meeting, I thought I was the only one. And there were people who said they thought they were the only one because of themselves. And there were kids who came out in that first meeting, which was a sign of how much that was needed. But also they had a brother, a sister, a friend, a cousin. Um, there was a boyfriend, girlfriend couple who said, we don't like bullying. And this seems like a place where we can talk about how we don't like bullying. And I just couldn't believe how much people were finding that value in this space and how kids of all backgrounds would find this was the place they could come and, 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 and find their voice. I mean, I remember we did a thing called a spotlight and it was basically one student could tell their story. The, the core question of the Gay Straight Alliance is, who are you and, and why are you here? And that was like always a thing. Like, and you, there was no wrong answer. Like, how, who are you and why are you here? So we'd allow one student, quite literally the spotlights, exactly what it sounds like. They stand in front of the room and, and talk for as long as they wanted. The shortest one ever was like a minute. The longest one ever was like 56 minutes. <laughs> um, uh, and I remember the moment I really knew that we were onto something was, you know, like, I don't know, six or seven meetings in, a student came to me and he asked if he could up the spotlight. And he was very high achieving. And he'd had some, I knew he'd had some personal difficulties. I knew him from outside of this all. And um, he, um, he asked if you could have the spotlight in the next meeting. And I was like, oh my gosh, like he's gonna, he's gonna like come out. Like that's what's gonna happen. That's why he's been having difficulty. So he goes to the front of the room and he starts telling his story. And I'm like waiting for the gay part, right? And He's like, well, you know, I left Haiti when I was six and I haven't seen my mom since I was six. He goes through his whole thing and I'm like waiting for the gay part and I'm waiting for the gay part. And he gets to the end and the whole thing was just about how he'd immigrated from Haiti and he missed his mom and it had nothing to do with LGBT related issues. And at the end, all these kids went up and hugged him. And I was like, wow, this has become the space where the straight Haitian student can come to talk about his immigration experience and other students see themselves in that whatever they are, whoever they are. And so at the same time, all that's going on, I still wasn't out myself. <laughs> yeah, wow. Kids are being uh-huh. brave. And so it kind of forced my hand. Um, 
And then when I did end up coming out to my classes, which is a very weird thing, a group of 14 year olds and Emily in my second year and all of this, the thing that really struck me was first of all, not only were they like not uncomfortable with it, they were like amazingly great about it. And they had all these questions. And I remember asking a student or asking the class rather, the first one that I came out to, and I'm remembering the one student's response when I asked this question. And I said, I gotta say, you guys have lots of questions. It seems like you all thought about this. Like, did you guys suspect or did you know? Or like, what's like, what is this? And one student said, and this will just stick with me forever, was he goes, well, we kind of thought you might be, but we thought you didn't respect us enough to tell us. <laughs> and I was like, wow. oh my gosh, I had this exactly wrong. And the thing yeah. that was crazy was once I came out, students saw in that like openness and vulnerability and honesty, they saw that I had skin in the game. And I started having so many students come to open up to me about all kinds of things, the vast majority of whom were not gay, but I became a real person. And that's where I became so committed to. If you're a teacher, you need to bring yourself into this. And that might be related to sexual orientation, might be related to lots of things. But if you are really bringing yourself into your work fully, kids respond really well to that. And kids are a lot smarter than we give credit and and here I was and I had it exactly opposite that I was hiding I was hiding that part of who I was in order to make kids feel safe and it was making them feel uncomfortable it was exactly <laughs> the opposite amazing thing. yeah mm-hmm mm-hmm so I know you've gone on you know one of the reasons we're talking is because you're very involved in politics and one of the questions for you is kind of what's it like navigating politics as a gay man today yeah it's It's a really interesting one because I think that the most important thing in politics now is, and again, we're in this moment where so much is in upheaval and people are really quick to judge each other and really quick to, um, you know, call each other out on Twitter and sort of look for the worst in each other. And to me, my own experience coming out, not coming out until relatively later, I was about 22 when I did, um, supporting high school students and then later college students in a variety of ways, including in, in Gay Straight Alliance spaces, that whole experience and everything related to my own coming out, helping others through it has given me a really deep sense that at the absolute core of your work, whatever it is, whether it's teaching, whether it's politics, has to be a deep respect for who people are. And mm -hmm. I think because I learned to mistrust my own emotions and I learned to be afraid of how people might judge me if they found out the truth, I have a much more deep appreciation for things like the truth. <laughs> and I have a much more deep appreciation for things like making people feel seen. And having come out the other side of that, pun intended, by the way, come out the other side of that. <laughs> um, I, nice, uh, nice. I, I want a world in which everyone can be who they are. And, and what does that look like? Well, I think lots of people feel misunderstood in lots of different ways right now, right? I think, and you see that even in, you know, the, and I'm personally, I'm not a conservative person. And yet I see in a lot of conservative people, this sense that 
our identity is under attack. Who I am is under attack. The country that I know is not what it used to be. And I see in that, in a lot of cases, uh, something that resembles a coming out experience, right? A sense mm-hmm. of being threatened. And in its own way, I can kind of reach to that um, and say, you know, I, we all want a space to feel heard and to feel included. Um, and that's not at all to say that every single person is experiencing the world evenly or to justify the worst defenses or what. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that this becomes complicated, but like at a core level, I really see a lot of commonalities between the emotional experience people are feeling of not belonging in this country right now. And how do we get more people to feel like they belong and being gay is just a very small subset of that. It just happens to be the way I think I see it most clearly. Yeah. So interesting. So interesting. So you've did a lot, you've done a lot of campaign strategy work for campaigns over the years. Um, One question we have is kind of how did you, how did your service experiences inform the way you, you know, participate in campaigns, supported campaigns, provided strategy? Just how did it inform the way you think about that work? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think um, for me, one really um, crucial part of how in my own service background um, informs my thinking on campaigns is that I don't see campaigns as like a separate thing that is outside the policy process or outside the political process or even outside like the life process. I see campaigns as something that should be integrated into and connected to community. So for example, uh, I'm really big whenever I work on campaigns, I'm doing as much as I can to build a strong team culture, organizational culture and getting young people involved in it. And I always think that a campaign should reflect the values that you're talking about in that campaign, right? So if you're talking about a vision of community and treating people better, and, um, and in my own politics, right, we talk a lot about ideas of, of inclusion, and we talk about community building, and we talk about making sure everyone has a voice. Well, we model that in the campaign. And I've found that campaign work can be very transactional, Um, It can be very easy with so many moving pieces and almost limitless um, areas that you can apply your your focus that it's really easy to be like, okay, you know, the only thing that matters is get this person to make as many calls as possible or to um, just treat people sort of as widgets. And I think because my background is in teaching and because my background is in service and because my background is really about sort of the people behind these things, my first priority is always are we doing the work in a way that's connected with the ultimate end goal of what these people will do when they're in office? So there's a, there's the alignment between the path and the goal and trying to integrate I that. So, at least, yeah. um, I have to ask, how much did your city year experience play into that? How much was part of kind of being part of city years culture? Is that something that you think about explicitly? Absolutely. I mean, and that's the thing. I think the thing is, so, I mean, I did city year, my gosh, 14 years ago now. Um, and so I think the thing about city, I mean, one thing that really is just so foundational to me, it's almost like, I almost remember it as if I came out of the womb this way, but in reality, I think it's largely a, like, it's just the result of the city or experience as it took 14 years to build on it is that I really, really deeply mm-hmm. think in terms of teams. And that was something city here taught me about yeah. how teams work and how everyone has something different to contribute. And that it's worth getting to know everyone. And so things like 
um, making sure that there's a strong, you know, even the, the existence of a team culture is something I really value. And I find, especially in campaigns, the ones that I've been sort of in a more supportive role compared to the ones I'm running, I find that there's much more commonly, it's like you only interact when you need something from someone. You don't really think of, I mean, to use like a, a metaphor, right? You only think about cutting the tree. You don't think of sharpening the saw at all. And City Year puts so much effort mm. into that idea mm -hmm. of capacity building, team building. And so I think because of that, um, I, I, I think about all those things enormously. And even because in my own experience, so much of City Year is about thinking about the future. I think City Year trained me to think with more of that long-term view. So like, yes, it's about winning the election, but it's also about, did everyone get things from it that they can carry the values forward of that experience in whatever directions they might go? And that, um, I think one last thing, uh, it's funny, I'm thinking about this more deeply than I, than I do on a day-to-day -day basis more often, but I, uh, you know, I really pride myself on being a values-driven person. And I think even that idea of you should really explicitly name your values is kind of a city year practice in itself. Um, that we say, you know, here's the thing we're working towards and here's how you get a group around it. Um, and so I think leading with your values and naming your values um, uh, as a central part of, of your political work is something that I think the country needs more of. It's something that I try to model and it's something that I saw as possible because of city year. That's great. And, you know, Emily Cherniak, the founder, and myself, we're all city year people. And it's something that we are very intentional about trying to bring into politics because the kind of default culture in the political world is not necessarily so thoughtful about that. So um, not yeah, surprised. Not to hear you say that. <laughs> yeah. um, I have to ask your your own mom ran successfully to be a state rep in a uh, state representative from Vermont. Tell us yeah. you, what was your role in that campaign and what's it like to help your mom run for office? Oh, it was wild. So first of all, I mean, I, I, I ran her campaign <laughs> um, and in, in, in an alternate timeline, because I live in Miami, that wouldn't have been possible. But in a very weird way, because of the pandemic, uh, it was. So the way this unfolded, it's just so funny how this all plays out. The way this unfolded was that my mom is truly one of these moms who always is interested, again, like, was drawn to the Peace Corps when she was young, always talked about political issues, always had opinions on community issues, always voted, and strongly encouraged my own interests in political life and so on. Never at all, ever talked about running herself, like not even remotely. And then because of all of her community work, um, she started to get more involved. And it's funny, it was when I was getting more involved uh, in in... Uh, progressive politics in Miami, she started to get more involved in, in Vermont. And I remember thinking, I was like, this is kind of, you know, I, I, I don't know, I guess like she's, she's stepping into these things. Like, is it like a, a weird mother-son thing? I don't know. Like, I don't really know what's going on here. But then in February of 2020, she had become like the town clerk of her local uh, Democratic Party, like um, getting more involved in all of that. She'd been very involved in a, a campaign for the state rep in 2018. And um, in February of 2020, she was recruited by a, um, uh, a group called Emerge Vermont, which uh, recruits and trains uh, women to run for office. Um, and when she told me this, I was like, wow, that's phenomenal. And it's like those things you hear in the news, right? Like these moms who have like 
never expressed an interest in office, who sort of had had enough with the direction they saw the country going in uh, and decided to step up. So in February of 2020, this was suddenly an option. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. Now, you know, <laughs> do the math. It's February of 2020. Life took an unexpected turn like a month later. Mm-hmm. And the idea didn't even sort of reemerge until April of that year. And then she was like, you know what? Like, I'm going to do it. It's going to be a pandemic. I, I'm going to be a first time candidate. Uh, but she'd had this training from immersion in February. And so um, I was like, you know what? I'm all in. I'll do whatever you need. And then this is the very ironic part is that because it was a pandemic, the campaign would have been all virtual, whether I was in California or Alaska or Vermont or Florida. And so I was able to play that, um, you know, that campaign manager role uh, and help her build up campaign structures and all of that. Um, as far as what I learned uh, or, or, or the process, I mean, for one, you know, it would have, <laughs> you could have kind of made a sitcom about some of our conversations because yeah, there. there was I like, bet. there's like, there was like this interaction of uh, like, you know, I'm 32 and she's, she's actually had me young. So she's just barely in her fifties, but you know, the sort of like millennial son and his mom and like, so like sometimes in the middle of a like campaign strategy, I'd also have to like play the role of the sun showing her how to use a Google doc, <laughs> you know, like, say like any 30 year old son would. And I, I actually remember the morning of her campaign launch, I was in a series of meetings from zoom for like three hours. And I told her to do something on Facebook that really was like very simple. Um, yeah. It's just, you needed to know how to do one thing and she didn't know how to do it. And after literally two and a half hours of texting back and forth while I was on these zooms, I was like, Oh my, you know, for the, for the love of God, Bob. And right. I was just like, just give me the password. So it took me like 30 seconds to do it. Once I had it. Um, so we'd have moments like that. And it was wild. Cause I was like so frustrated in the way that like a son gets. And then I realized it wasn't a big deal. And then I had this unbelievable moment where like my mom was now a public candidate. And I'm like, this is not how I ever imagined these things happening. <laughs> you know? um, Amazing. And so, and so that all happened. I think that really the thing that I learned most though is it was very cool to see just how good of a candidate she was because she didn't necessarily know the nuts and bolts of campaigns, but what she did know was community. And what she did know was you know, this is why she was recruited, right? She had like 17 years of being active in the community and volunteering and being a good person. And I got to see that people really saw that in her, which was really cool. That like, Mm. you see all of these people who she'd helped out and she'd volunteered for, or they'd seen her at the warming shelter, the center, um, uh, you know, sort of a homeless shelter in the community that she'd been very active in for many, many years in a side role, just sort of supporting and showing up or in her work for youth in the community or all of these things. And she never expected anything from that, but all these people showed up wanting to support her. So from like a campaign angle, it was really very cool because she was so community minded and never really expected anything for it. And all of a sudden that came together. Um, And then out of a field of five candidates and as the only woman, um, she was able to win a seat in the Vermont House of Representatives. Um, And then she's uh, been very active and, you know, within like three weeks of winning office, she had already like contacted the clerk of the Vermont house and she'd figured out how to file a bill to eliminate mm-hmm. cash bail in the state of Vermont, uh, for nonviolent offenders. And like before, like, again, like <laughs> when it's like November of the election year, most campaign people like don't really do anything for a long time after. 
and before the month was up, she I think I think she was the only um, first term legislator who was going to file a bill on her own. And she just like figured out how to do it. And I was like, this is what it looks like when you get good community minded people in office. Um, and it really did, I think, also demystify the process for me because it was my mom. Right. Like, right. There's no mystique about it. Like, it's my mom. Like, and I just it was the same value she's always had. Um, like even this morning we were talking about something and then she was like, Oh, I can't follow up tomorrow. We're going to override the governor's veto on this, this thing that was, she didn't support, but she said that it was anti-immigrant. And I almost forgot she was a state rep until that moment, but I'm like, Oh yeah, she gets to act on these values now, which to me mm-hmm. is what being in office is about, you know, taking those, taking those values that you you've talked about and, um, putting them into practice to improve people's lives. It's awesome. You can't see, but I'm smiling ear to ear. It's really fun to think about going through that with your mom. And she wins on the other side and is able to do all this uh, this cool work. It's it's such a great story. Um, so just a couple more questions for you. Uh, one is, you came through our Answering the Call program. So you know that it's for people who are thinking about, should I get in, involved in politics? Many folks come through that and they realize they want to they want to do politics in some way, but they don't want to be a candidate. And maybe they're not even so into like, you know, working full time on a, a as a campaign staffer. You are somebody who's found ways to kind of multiple different pathways into politics. So right now you're executive director of the Democratic Party in Miami-Dade. Just tell us a little bit about how you get to contribute. Like, what do you do in that role? And how do you get to kind of serve again through politics in that role that is not necessarily about being the candidate or being on a campaign? Yeah. Well, so I'm actually correct. I, I at one point was the uh, the executive director of the Miami Dade Democratic Party. I'm actually the executive director of the Miami Dade Trial Lawyers Association now. Um, ah, and so okay. I ended up leaving. I left. I left that party role to work with campaigns directly. But I think what they all represent are various roles that allow me to build infrastructure, right? Which is like the nerdiest thing and the least sexy thing you can say. <laughs> well, tell us me, more about it. Yeah, like for me, for me, I, you know, actually, this is another thing that came out of City Year. I think it was the second, like we, we had the putting idealism to work, like the principles. I think this was the second one, like number two out of like 150. And it was from the art of war and it was every battle is won or lost before it is fought. And yeah. that's something that always stuck with me. And I've really taken to heart that when it comes to almost anything, there's this whole life behind it. And that includes like just your daily life, right? Like the world did not start existing when I was born into it. All of these factors and structures and things are in place. And so there's that level of it. And then on a more sort of immediate level, okay, that plays out in everything, your own you know, your, your, your personal health, your personal experiences, the relationships you form, all of that determine whether or not you're going to be successful in a thing. Like when someone, you look, you look at people who've done amazing things and it's really easy to like, be like Barack Obama came out of the womb, giving, like giving amazing speeches. No, he didn't. Like, and actually like his first campaign for Congress, he lost. And the main critique was he was a bad speaker. And then he became like the best speaker in modern politics. So just there's, there's such clear examples of the things you do in advance determine the success when you're there. So then for me, as I was turning the corner and I had, I had been a public school teacher for four years. I was with a class from their freshman through their senior year of high school in the Miami-Dade County public schools. And when I did answering the call, I was in graduate school as I was sort of thinking about what the pivot would be. How do I take this experience and how do I then apply it um, 
to take these ideas to scale, right? Because you could do the best job in the world with a classroom. What about the classroom next door? What about the classroom next to that? What about the next school? What about the yeah. next city? What about the next state, right? And so how do I bridge my immediate school-based experience with this idea of doing things at a, at a larger scale? And so with that as my goal, I've found a variety of roles where what I'm doing is trying to connect the dots in the belief that every battle is won or lost before it is fought. That there's a lot of ways you can contribute. And if the role opens up where me being the candidate is the right thing, then I'd love to play that role. But what I really like about what I do now is that through my various um, roles in the progressive ecosystem is that I'm able to work with candidates, with young people in particular, um, and help people who are community-minded demystify the process. Because I think everyone looks at it as if there's like a Wizard of Oz behind the curtain, and there is no Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. It's just human beings. And left to its own devices, the people who step up, there's no guarantee ever that people are going to enter politics for reasons of service. There will always be people who are motivated because they like to see their name in lights. There will always be people who are motivated for power. There will always be people who are motivated for money. There's absolutely nothing guaranteeing that service-minded people are going to enter politics. In fact, there's a lot of reasons they don't. <laughs> and in most right. of my experiences, right. a lot of the best people I know say, oh, I would never run. Like, I would never choose. Well, that's exactly the person you want to run. <laughs> right. And no, so, we, we deal with that a lot. Think, yeah. yeah. I think what I'm able to do um, in my current situation is that I'm able to, I think, extend my values a lot farther by helping push other people and helping other people work through these things. And even like, I work with an organization called Men for Choice, and I'm very proud of a, of a fellowship that we've created where we train cohorts of uh, young, young men who are, who are advocates for, for reproductive freedom and, and bodily autonomy to be better allies and advocates. And they get trained in organizing skills and advocacy and the goal isn't that every single one of them runs for office, but the goal is that they make their greatest contributions, which might include running for office at some point. It might include stepping up. It certainly includes supporting candidates. And so because I'm not in office myself, I can focus my energies totally on this kind of multiplier effect where I kind of coach and mentor and support those people or, you know, uh, candidates, weirdly my own mom being one of them, right? And mm -hmm. help bring that into the world because you know, if the opportunity came for me to be in public office and I was able to extend my values more and I was able to strengthen communities and I was able to create opportunities through being in public office, I'd want to do that. But I'm not like the only person who's able to do that. And what I can do now is I can work with dozens, maybe even hundreds of people who can kind of reach others. And I feel like that's a really good contribution to the landscape, especially the young people. Um, and I'm really happy to be doing that. And out of that, I think the, the right thing is going to emerge. Love it. Love it. And, you know, we, we do have a lot of folks who are just trying to imagine how they might be involved in some way. And it's just great to hear your experiences. So we're getting close to our, uh, you know, our, our time limit here. So I do have a, a, a kind of a final question for you. We're, we're having this conversation during Pride Month 2021. It's a complex moment. There's all kinds of signs of progress in terms of acceptance and equality. And there's also waves of laws designed to discriminate against members of the gay community, ongoing violence against members of the trans community. So it's a complex moment. What do you hope Americans are thinking about and reflecting on during Pride Month 2021? What do you hope they're 
they're thinking about? That's a great, great question. I mean, I think that progress is not inevitable and history never ends. And the worst things in history tend to happen at the exact moments where people think bad things can't happen anymore. And so I think we're seeing this with the rise in anti-Semitism, for example. It's not that anti-Semitism suddenly reappeared. It just never went away. And it's always been beneath the surface. And there's always a part of people that is going to want to divide from other people. There's always that ability to withdraw due to fear. And I think that these sorts of things aren't usually coming from malice. It's coming from people make decisions based on what they think is best for themselves and their family and their immediate interests. And unfortunately, when I think about like with LGBT things, you know, the, the majority of people who opposed LGBT rights when I was a teenager 20 years ago, who now support them, they're not fundamentally different people. They just can lean into different values and see LGBT, LGBT people as part of, um, you know, sort of an acceptable society in a way they hadn't learned to yet before. And I think my takeaway from that isn't, oh, we did it and now everything's perfect. It's that any number of things could happen next. And our duty, if we are people who have had the experience of hearing others say you don't deserve the same rights as everyone else, or if you are someone who's had the experience of being told you don't belong, or if you are someone who's had the experience of looking out at the world and thinking it's not built for you, that you have a duty to make other people feel less that way. And that's really my driving thing that I, I try to think about all the time. I think about more in Pride Month than other times is that at a very core level, no kid should look out at the world and think it's not built for them, especially in this country. And how do we bring that into existence more fully for everyone? And I think that's the takeaway. Uh, and the work never ends. It just is reminded uh, that it's crucially important in Pride Month. Fantastic. So powerful. Well, Aaron Bosselon, thank you so much for making time to share your story and share your wisdom with our community. Just really appreciate you and all that you're doing and, and wish you all the best. Thanks for being with us. Thank, thank you, Max. This has been a lot of fun. I, mean, I guess I'm a huge believer in what new politics does and appreciate you uh, bringing me on. This has been the New Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Max Clow. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join us for our next episode when we meet another servant leader who has chosen to step up and serve through politics. If you want to learn more about New Politics and the candidates that we support, please check us out online at newpolitics.org. And as always, I'll leave you with this question. How do you feel called to serve at this critical moment for the nation? Thanks for joining. See you next time.